Welcome to the Page Turners, a podcast dedicated to books, man. Books here, books there, books everywhere. Walking through books, examining books, book reviews, book studies, books, books, books from a black perspective. In season one of the Page Turners, we chose Black Theology and Black Power by the late, great Dr. James H. Cohn. So we've been spending some time, man, walking through this book, man, chopping it up, having a great time uh, discussing many of the things that uh, are written in this book, man, which was published in 1969. Black Theology and Black Power provided the first systematic presentation of Black Theology, relating the militant struggle for liberation with the gospel message of salvation. Dr. James H. Cohn laid out the foundation for an original interpretation of Christianity that retains its urgency and challenge today. In 1969, man, much of the stuff that we've already tackled in this book study, season one here, um, is still very much relevant to what is taking place in Christendom in 2018. If this is your first time tuning in to The Page Turners, I am your host, Elgin Bailey, a.k.a. Big L, a.k.a. Mr. Catch-22, a.k.a. Bishop Heavyset Voice. Uh, somebody wrote in the other day, man, asking about uh, the Bishop Heavyset <laughs> name. And uh, there's a story behind it that I, I won't particularly get into it now, but shout out to the brothers, man, of uh, Real Talk Radio. Uh, <laughs> Not only brothers, man, but dear, dear friends of mine. Uh, a couple more shout outs, man. A little bit more house cleaning before we dig into uh, episode 14, uh, chapter 3. Before we even deal with that, I want to send a shout out to two brothers, man, who have been consistently doing their thing, man, standing in the gap. One of them, man, is my my. Well, both of them are dear friends of mine, but my brother Andre Watson, man, who is putting it down with his brilliant, brilliant videos, Conscious Christian. You can find him on YouTube, man. That's Conscious Christian. You're going to want to check him out and follow him and stay, uh, stay connected to what he's doing. Then another brother, man, who literally has a heart for those who have been hurt uh, in Christendom, in the church, he is unapologetic in his, unapologetic and unwavering in his commitment to hold the church and these pastors, bishops, apostles, whatever title that they're calling themselves today. And that would be the homie Leonard Robertson, man, also known as the truth seeker. Man, this brother is dropping heat consistently, uh, addressing the ills of churchianity. These two brothers, man, you want to find them, you want to subscribe, you want to follow them. That is the Conscious Christian and Leonard Robinson, man. 
also known as the truth seeker. Check these brothers out, man. Stay connected to these brothers. Uh, they are doing great, great work. Uh, all right, to the text, man. Again, this is episode 14. Shout out to all the listeners, man. Shout out to all the followers. Shout out to all the folks who have donated to what we are doing here at the Page Turners. This is episode three, chapter, I'm sorry, episode 14. We are still in chapter three, the white church and black power. And the text reads as follows. The church is not defined by those who faithfully attend or participate in 11 a.m. Sunday worship. As Harvey Cox says, the insistence by the reformers that the church was where the word is rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered will simply not do today. Now, I'm going to read that one more time because that's important. That is crucial. Harvey Cox says the insistence by the reformers that the church was where the world is rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered was simply not due today. Mm. It may have been fine for distinguishing orthodoxy from heresy, but it is, a worthless, it is worthless as a vehicle against modern racism. Man, I can spend 19,000 hours on that right there. And sometimes I, I, I find myself reading and rereading. When I'm reading a book by myself, man, sometimes I fly right through it and I'm able to, to grasp the information. But sometimes, man, it's I'm able to grasp it, but I still want to chew on it for a minute because it just says something so crucial. And not only says something crucial, fam, but you ever read something in a book that you've been feeling for a long time that you already felt and believed, but you just couldn't properly articulate it, or that you you were like, man, I've always felt that way, and you don't feel alone any longer <laughs> in what you believe. The, the, the church is not defined by those who faithfully attend and participate in the 11 a.m. Sunday worship. It may have been fine for distinguishing orthodoxy from heresy, but it is a it is worthless as a vehicle against modern racism. Now, man, some of my listeners, man, who follow me, you're going to take that, that that quote from Harvey Cox and you're going to turn it into a, a tweet. You're going to turn it into a Facebook status. If you do, please shout out your boy, man. You ain't got to shout my name out, man, but shout out the Page Turners, man. Shout out what, what we're doing over here. You know, just in your citation. <laughs> shout out, shout out the page turners, man. Because I love that. It may have been fine for distinguishing orthodoxy from heresy, but it is worthless as a vehicle against modern racism. We must therefore be reminded that Christ was not crucified on an altar between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. He is not in our peaceful, quiet, comfortable suburban churches, but in the ghetto fighting the racism of churchy white people. Now, Dr. James Cone is preaching up in this joint, man. He is laying it down, man. Because there's a lot of you folk out there, man. Because I got some listeners, man, who, who are, you know, uh, not followers of Christ. They, they don't believe and they don't follow or subscribe to Christianity. Uh, and I'm not here to convert them with this podcast. 
But it's a lot of y'all who constantly and consistently say that Christianity is not fighting against white supremacy or racism because it is a tool of racism, white supremacy. And let me say this. I agree that westernized European Christianity is a tool. And I'll go even far further and say it is the chief tool of white supremacy. But what you can't say is there's no black Christians out there who are not trying and willing to consistently put a foot in the behind of white evangelical Christianity with truth. And as we see in Dr. James Cone writing this book in 1969, he was doing just that. He was dropping the hammer. No wonder they wasn't trying to, <laughs> to fellowship with his brother. And the text reads, in the New Testament, New Testament perspective, the church has essentially three functions, preaching, service, and fellowship. Preaching means proclaiming to the world what God has done for man in Jesus Christ. The church tells the world about Christ's victory over alien, hostile forces. If we compare Christ's work on the cross with warfare, as Oscar Coleman and others do, then it is the task of the church to tell the world that the decisive battle in the world has been fought and won by Christ. Freedom has come. The old tyrants have been displaced, and there is no need for anyone to obey evil powers. <laughs> the church then is men and women running through the streets announcing that freedom is a reality. This is easily translated into the context of modern racism. God in Christ has set men free from white power, and this means an end to ghettos and all they imply. The church tells black people to shape up and act like free men because old powers of white racism are writhing in final agony. The good news of freedom is proclaimed also to the oppressor. But since he mistakes his enslaving power for life and health, he does not easily recognize his own mortal illness or hearing the healing word. But the revolution is on and there is no turning back. Modern preaching has little to do with white ministers admonishing their people to be nice to Negroes or to obey the law of the land. Nor does it involve inviting good Negro preachers to preach about race relations. Preaching in its truest sense tells the world about Christ's victory and thus invites people to act as if God has won the battle over racism. To preach in America today is to shout black power, black freedom. Now listen, man, I hope you caught that because I keep hearkening back to the fact that this book was written in 1969 and is now 2018 and we still see the very same things. Reading this book is as if Dr. James Cone just wrote this book and released it because the same type of things is still taking place right now. You have a number of white evangelical Christians who are preaching to their congregations that they need to be nice to black folks, to obey the law of the land, and inviting the good Negro preacher to come and preach about race relations. We see it time and time again. That is so consistent. Man, listen, man. I, every time I read this book, man, I get so freaking excited because Dr. Cone was killing it. All right, man. Let me, let me simmer down a little bit now. And the text reads, 
It is important to remember that the preaching of the word presents a crisis situation. The hearing of the news of freedom through the preaching of the word always invites the hearer to take one or two sides. He must either side with the old wars or the new one. He that is not for me is against me. There is no neutral position in a war. Even in silence, one is automatically identified as being on the side of the oppressor. <laughs> what? How many of your white Christian brethren, man, are silent? Are silent? How many? In their silence, man, guilt is found. What? Even in silence, one is automatically identified as being on the side of the oppressor. There is no place in the, this war of liberation for nice white people who want to avoid taking sides and remain friends with both the racist and the Negro. To hear the word is to decide, are you with us or against us? There is no time for conferences or talk of any sort. If the hearing of the word and the encounter with the spirit do not convict you, then talk will be of little avail. The church not only preaches the word, the word of liberation, it joins Christ in his work of liberation. This is service. Through the decisive battle has, though the decisive battle has been fought and won over racism, the war is not over. There's still left what G.P. Lewis calls the mopping up operations. Just as the war in Europe continued for months after it was won at Stalingrad and El Alamein, so the war against principalities and powers continues after the decisive battle on the cross. We will have to fight racism. The evil forces have been defeated but refuse to admit it. Although defeated, writes William Harden, evil still has sufficient strength to fight a stubborn rear guard action. It is the task of the church to join Christ in this fight against evil. Thomas Weiser puts it this way. The way of the church is related to the fact that Koyas Lord himself is on his way in the world, and the church has no choice but to follow him who proceeds. Consequently, obedience and witness to Christ require the discernment of the opening which he provides and the willingness to step into the opening. Now, I know a lot of my Christian brethren, man, uh, always, you know, want, want to point to the fact that racism is a spiritual, since it's a sin. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual fight. We should be fighting it from a spiritual standpoint. The doctor just Dr. Cohn addresses that. Yes, even though the battle is won with the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's still the mopping up operations. Still the mopping up operations, family. <laughs> He's killing it. And the text reads. The opening has been made and the church must follow. To follow means that the church is more than a talking or resolution passing community. Its talk is backed up with relevant involvement in the world as a witness through action. 
that what it says is in fact true. Where is the opening that Christ provides? Where does he lead his people? Where indeed, if not in the ghetto? He meets blacks where they are and becomes one of them. We are him there in his black face and big black hands lounging on a street corner. Oh, but surely Christ is above race. But for but society is not racist any more than when God became a despised Jew. White liberal preference for a racist Christ serves only to make official and orthodox the centuries-old portrayal of Christ as white. The raceless American Christ has a light skin, wavy brown hair, and sometimes, wonder of wonders, blue eyes. For whites to find him with big lips and kinky hair is as offensive as it was for the Pharisees to find him partying with the tax collectors. But whether whites want to hear it or not, Christ is black, baby, with all the features which are so detestable to white society. <laughs> to suggest that Christ is taking on a black skin is not theological emotionalism. If the church is a continuation of the incarnation, and if the church of Christ are where the oppressed are, then Christ and his church must identify totally with the oppressed to the extent that they too suffer for the same reasons persons are enslaved. In America, blacks are oppressed because of their blackness. It was seen then that emancipation can only be realized by Christ and his church becoming black. Thinking of Christ as non-black in the 20th century is as theologically impossible as thinking of him as a non-Jewish in the first century. God's word in Christ not only fulfills his purpose for man through his elected people, but also inaugurates a new age in which all oppressed people become his people. In America, that people is a black people. In order to remain faithful to his word in Christ, his present manifestation must be the very essence of blackness. It is the job of the church to become black with him and accept the shame which white society places on blacks. But the church knows that what is a shame to the world is holiness to God. Black is holy, that is. It is a symbol of God's presence in history on behalf of the oppressed man. Where there is black, there is oppression. But, black, but blacks can be assured that where there is blackness, there is Christ, who has taken on blackness so that what is evil in men's eyes might become good. Therefore, Christ is black because he is oppressed and oppressed because he is black. And if their church is to join Christ by following his opening, it too must, be, must go where suffering is and become black also. Mm, 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 mm. The text reads, this is what the New Testament means by the service of reconciliation. It is not smoothing things over by ignoring the deep-seated racism in white society. It is freeing the races of racism by making him confront blacks as men. Reconciliation has nothing to do with the let's talk about it attitude or it takes time attitude. It merely says, look, man. The revolution, revolution is on. Whose side are you on? The church is also fellowship. This means the church must be in its own community, what it preaches and what it seeks to accomplish in the world. 
Through the preaching of the word, the church calls the world to be responsive to God's act in Christ, and through its services, it seeks to bring it about. But the church's preaching and service are meaningful only insofar as the church itself is a manifestation of the preached word. As Harvey Cox puts it, preaching is the as sorry, fellowship is the aspect of the church's responsibility, which calls for a visible demonstration of what the church is saying in its preaching and pointing to its teaching. Thus the church, by definition, contains no trace of racism. Christ has broken down the dividing walls of hostility, Ephesians 2.14. That is why Karl Birth describes the church as God's subjective realization of the atonement. Mm-mm-mm. It is this need to be the sign of the kingdom in the world which impels the church according to Acts who is the community who in the community does not live according to the spirit of Christ? This is the kind of question which was so important to the 16th century Anabaptists, and it must be vital for the church of any age. Speaking to this question, Barth says, The church which is not deeply disturbed by it is not a Christian church. It cannot be Christ existing as community or Christ's presence in the history, as Bonhoeffer would put it without being seriously concerned about the holiness of his members. It is true that this concern may cause a community to ask one question. It may focus on irrelevancies, smoking, dancing, drinking, etc., rather than on the essential racism. But it's only through the asking the question, what makes men Christians? That the true church is able to be Christ in the world. The true church of Christ must define clearly through its members the meaning of God's act in Christ so that all may know what the church is up to. There can be no doubt in the minds of its members regarding the nature of its community and its purpose in the world. It must be a community that has accepted Christ's acceptance of us, and in this sense it must be holy at all times and in all situations holy members of the Holy Church, and therefore Christians, were and are the men assembled in it who are thereto elected by the Lord, called by his word, and continued by his spirit. Just so many, no more, no less, these men and no others. Mm-mm-mm. I'm going to take me a little sip of water on that because <laughs> that was fire. Excuse me, family. Here we go. And the text reads, If the real church is the people of God, whose primary task is it that being Christ to the world by proclaiming the message of the gospel, by rendering services of liberation, and by being itself a manifestation of the nature of the new society, then the empirical institutionalized white church has failed on all accounts. It certainly has not rendered services of reconciliation to the poor. Rather, it illustrates the values of a sick society which oppresses the poor. Some present-day theologians like Hamilton also, taking their cue from, from Nietzsche and the present irrelevancy of the church to modern man, have announced the death of God. It seems, however, that their chief mistake lies in their apparent identification of God's identity with the signed-up Christians. 
If we were to identify the work of God with the white church, then like Alcer, we must will the death of God with a passion of faith. Or as Thomas would say, if God did not exist, <laughs> we should have to abolish him. The white church has not merely failed to render services to the poor, but has failed miserably in being a visible manifestation to the world of God's intention for humanity and in proclaiming the gospel to the world. It seems that the white church is not God's redemptive agent, but rather an agent of the old society. It fails to create an atmosphere of radical obedience to Christ. Most church fellowships are more concerned about drinking or new buildings or Sunday closing than what children who die of rat bites or men who are killed because they want to be treated like men. The society is falling apart for want of moral leadership and moral example. But the white church passes in, <clears throat> excuse me, the white church passes resolution and waits to be congratulated. It is a sad fact that the white church's involvement in slavery and racism in America simply cannot be overstated. It not only failed to preach the gospel word, but <laughs> maliciously contributed to the doctrine of white supremacy. Even today, all of the church's institutions, including its colleges and universities, reveal its white racist character. Racism has been a part of the life of the church so long that it is virtually impossible for even the good members to recognize the bigotry perpetrated by the church. Its morals are so immoral that even as its most sensitive minds are unable to detect the inhumanity of the church on the black people of America. This is at least one of the suggestions by Kyle Heisenden, who was in most cases a very perceptive white Southern churchman. He says, we must ask whether our morality is itself immoral, whether our codes of righteousness are, when applied to the Negro, a violation and the distortion of Christian ethics. Do we not judge what is right, what is wrong in racial relationships by a righteousness which is itself unrighteous, by codes and creeds which in themselves are immoral? The question is asked and the answer is obvious to the astute observer. <clears throat> Excuse me. The church has been guilty of the grave sin of all, the enshrining of that which is immoral as the highest morality. Jesus called this the sin of against the Holy Spirit. It is unforgivable because it is never recognized. The question is asked and answered. The question is asked, and the answer is obvious to the astute observer. The church has been guilty of the greatest sin of all, the enshrining of that which is immoral as the highest morality. Jesus called this the sin against the Holy Spirit. It is unforgivable because it is never recognized. I'm going to finish it up with one more quote from Pierre Burton. Pierre Mark Burton puts it mildly. In the racial struggle, there is revealed the same pattern of tardiness, apathy, non-commitment, and outright opposition by the church. Indeed, the history of the race struggle in the United States has been to a considerable extent the history of the Protestant Rappaport with the status quo. From the beginning, it was the church 
that put its blessing on slavery and sanctioned a caste system that continues today. From the beginning, it was the church that put its blessing on slavery and sanctioned a caste system that still continues today. From the beginning. It was the church from the beginning, family. And I want to be clear when, because by doing research, man, and reading further, I don't believe that Dr. James Cone is talking about the church here in America. It is documented in historical records, the Catholic Church's approval of the transatlantic slave trade. Not only their approval, but their support. Not only their approval, but their support. From the beginning, the white church's hands have been bloody, filthy, and full of money that they have made off the backs of black slaves. And not much has changed, family. It's your boy Elgin Bailey with episode 14 of the Page Turners doing a walkthrough of the masterpiece, the great work of the great late Dr. James H. Cone, Black Theology and Black Power. I want to thank you guys, man, for continuing to tune in, to listen, to share. Man, if you have any comments, criticisms, concerns, want to discuss things further, you can find your boy on Twitter, at Elgin Bailey. That is at Elgin Bailey, at E-L-G-I-N-B-A-I-L-E-Y. You can find me, man. You can hit me up uh, and we can discuss this, man. But please, please, however you share information or whatever way that you share podcasts, please share this with other people, man. Allow this information to permeate and create discussions, man. I thank you guys for tuning in to the Page Turners. We out.